All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve, and I'm the lead pastor. And uh, this morning, we're going to be starting a new sermon series uh, through the book of James. Super excited about this. Um, you should have received a study book when you came in. Um, and if you didn't, if you didn't, I would love it if you would just raise your hand. We'd love to put one in your hand, okay? Um, don't worry about it. Just raise your hand, and we'll put one in your hand. These study books were designed to help you engage the sermon series. It is designed to help you maximize uh, your experience in it. Um, and, and if you're with a spouse or a friend, you both need one, okay? Because it's designed for a personal response and a personal study. And so sharing it is not going to be incredibly effective because uh, what you're going to find is that inside this book, each week there are three sections. And the first section is designed to help you engage the study. So the text is in there. Um, it's designed so that you'll read uh, the text. It, we've set this up to help you learn how to study the Bible on your own, how to observe the text, how to ask questions and formulate conclusions and, and, and pray through it, right? So the first step is, is I'm going to ask you to engage the Scripture every week before you come on Sunday. So that means I'm giving you homework, right? And I know that's a weird thing for church to do, and, and I would apologize, but I don't, because it's, it's good for you. It's going to be good for you. Listen, you should be able to do that study in 15 minutes a week. You have 15 minutes a week. Now, if you really get into it, it may end up taking longer. You might spend 30 minutes or 45 minutes. I, praise God. You know, you, you spend, but, but you can do it in 15 minutes a week. And, and what it will require you to do is simply read the text, observe it instead of rushing through it, like actually pay attention to it, and then ans answer some, some observatory questions. It's called inductive Bible study. It's, it, <laughs> excuse me. It is just a way of letting the text speak for itself in a way that you slow down and pay attention to what it's saying. The second section in there is about Sunday morning. When you come to hear the sermon, uh, there's some pages in there for you to take some notes. So after you've read the text and studied it a little bit, um, you're going to come in and, and you're going to have some thoughts already formulated, some questions already floating in your head. You're going to already be, you're going to be ready, right? And so when we, when we engage the sermon, I think you're going to get a lot more out of it. And then the third section is designed to then push you out in community um, to, to equip you to, to actually talk about the text with, with, with others, right? Which is, Bible study has never been intended to be this individualistic, isolated thing, right? When you look in the Old Testament, through the history of God's people, we, we, God has led us to engage Scripture together, right? In the Old Testament, they would gather for the reading of God's Word, and then they would have public discussions of God's Word, and they would study God's Word together. It wasn't this, like, I'm going to go in my closet and learn on my own, and, and so we learn from each other, right? We, we expand our understanding by sharing our understanding and sharing our growth. And so uh, it is designed to be done in our community groups. You can go into our community groups and, and, and we will, you'll be primed because you'll be able to look at the questions before you get there and, and hopefully um, really enjoy some fruitful conversation with other believers. Of course, it can be done in other settings. That's the, that's the way we've structured it though. So here's the thing. I really encourage you to, to grab one of these books and, and to engage it because I, I, it is designed to help you grow. I think it's going to maximize the blessing you experience over the course of this study if you really engage it, okay? Um, these books cost us about, what, $6.20 each to make. Uh, if you want to help offset the cost of that, you can make donations out at the table. Um, we're not selling them. We're giving them away because we want you to have it. So if you're like, I'm not sure it's worth six bucks, take it, okay? Just use it. All right. Um, if, if you want to donate toward it, please do. Uh, if you want to donate a little bit extra so that it covers others um, who, you know, 
for whatever reason won't or can't, praise God, go ahead and do that. Um, but you can do that at the table out there. All right, um, we're going to be heading over to James. Before we do, um, I, I want to pause. Um, I, uh, I don't have words. Um, I didn't write anything out. Um, reflecting on the events of this week, um, every three to six weeks, it seems like I have to, to pause and reflect on some other atrocity, some, some, some new manifestation of depravity, some new and disturbing um, suffering. This week, as you guys know, um, 15 kids and two adults lost their lives. 15 more were injured when um, a hurt and uh, a young man went and uh, shot up school. And um, I don't, honestly, I don't, I'm dumbfounded. This is becoming so common that schools are now implementing as part of their curriculum um, emergency shooter situations. That's becoming one of the drills. I grew up in California doing earthquake drills. Um, now they're doing shooter drills. And, and I'm hearing stories about kids coming home and crying because they're wearing shoes that light up. And during the drill, they realize that that makes them more visible, so they can't wear them. We have eight, nine, ten-year-old kids absorbing a level of stress and distress that is phenomenal. And what is absolutely sickening to me is the way we respond. We use it as an excuse to get on our political and social platforms and to just increase the amount of how much we despise one another and we attack each other and, and we belittle each other and, and we use this as an excuse to, to puff ourselves up and you guys, it's sick. Our culture is melting. And instead of learning how to push into humility and to drink from the fountain of grace and to relate with people who think differently than us, we are instead promoting the very divisions that are causing the breakdown of our culture. This should not be. We need to listen to the words of James, be angry and do not sin. We need to listen to the words of John, come Lord Jesus, come. You guys, I'm I got a lot of feelings and I got a lot of sadness and I don't know. But I think there's a lot of people that don't really know how to process it. And we're tempted to give our hearts over to despair and stop processing it because it happens too often and it hurts too much. So I want to call us this morning not to some right answer. I want to call us this morning to the only first and appropriate response, lament. Let's feel the sorrow. And let's lament to the God 
who is the only one that can break, fix what is broken in the human condition. You guys pray with me. Father, we, uh, we come to you um, as those who feel sorrow and have been so numbed by it, we don't even know how to feel it anymore. We want to pause and lift up the parents in this community who have lost their children, their loved ones, the spouses and the children who have lost their fathers. Pray for those that are in the hospital, um, healing or in critical condition. Lord, we pray that your grace would be present in this community, that there would be those who would be a voice that points to what genuinely heals which is your work in your son. Lord, I pray that you will raise up leaders in this community who will lead people to know how to give voice to their sorrow and, and lead them to, to expressing their anger in ways that don't further dehumanize and cause irreparable damage to the fabric of our culture. Lord, I pray for this young man who did this despicable deed that your grace might break into his depravity, that your sanity might whisper into the demons that have been circling in his head. Lord, we pray above all that you would help us to grow and our ability to lament what is broken and hope for the only thing that can fix it, that you will help us to not grow cold or cynical, but we will be people who rise up in hope knowing that because you died and rose again, we can have hope that you will remake, redeem and restore what is broken at the core of our condition. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, we're heading over to the book of James. Um, grab your Bibles. Let's go over to James 1. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one off the chairs around you. And our Bibles are going to be going over to page 1011. Um, I am super excited uh, about starting this study with you. We have been preparing to do this study for months now, and and uh, the more I've studied this text and sat in it, the more excited I've become for, for what it has for us. Now, James is a book that has a really colorful past. Um, here's the ironic thing. Theologians have long struggled with the book of James, and many of them have downright disliked it. Um, and, and there are some reasons for that. James is an interesting book. It, it never mentions the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Never does. It only mentions Jesus twice. And yet the words of Jesus pervade this letter like no other letter in the New Testament. This book echoes the very words and the thoughts of Jesus, especially his Sermon on the Mount, in a way that, that is profound. This book um, doesn't often push into deep theological waters. It is very, very practical. It talks a lot about, about 
you know, how we live out grace, how the, how the, the heavenly by and by speaks into the gritty here and now, how we're supposed to live out grace in our, in our daily lives. But, but when it does push into the deep waters of theology, man, James comes out swinging. Um, he, he doesn't hold back. And this book really is, is one uh, jab after another that, that um, comes after us and, and, and interestingly enough, when he does get into theology, he gets into some stuff that, that is challenging, right? It almost seems like he has a beef with the Apostle Paul, um, which I don't think he does, uh, but we're going to get into that. I mean, that's part of what we're going to be studying as we, we dig into this. The, the famous uh, reformer, Martin Luther, called this an epistle made of straw. I don't even know what that means, but um, I don't think it's complimentary. Right, James wanted this book buried at the very back of the Bible um, because he, he's like, this, this is the, don't pay attention to this one, right? It belongs in there, but put it at the very, very, the very back. Um, here's the thing. The irony is as much as scholars have struggled with this book, Christians have loved it. This is one of the most well-known and quoted New Testament books. It has been loved by Christians through the centuries. Um, and, and that's because James is incredibly practical. I mean, it is just incredibly practical. It speaks to us where we are, right? It speaks to our daily lives and to the challenges we face and to the things that we're struggling with. And, and he does it with rich, vivid imagery, right? There, there, there are images in here that are going to stick with you, right? A, a man looking into a mirror like he looks, you know, look into the Word of God like you look a man looking into his mirror and remember what you see. Or, or if you're a double-minded man, unstable in your faith, you're like this ship that is tossed on the sea. I mean, he has all of these rich and vivid images that, that I think really help it come to life. And here's the thing, I think it is going to speak powerfully to us. I think as we dig in and study this, it's really going to be a blessing to us. Even though it was one of the earliest New Testament books written, um, written to a very different audience in a very different time, I think it speaks very, very powerfully to us in our, our condition today. So let's take a look at James chapter 1. We have a lengthy reading today, so make sure you're following along. We're going to be reading verse 1. Uh, so we're starting in James 1 verse 1, and uh, just follow along as I read aloud. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys, um, you might be wondering why in the world I would choose to start this series by focusing on just one verse, and of all verses, this one, right? This typically is the part of the, the, the book that is like, these are seen as throwaway verses. You know what I'm saying? We normally read through this stuff and we just keep right on going because it's like, what does this have to do with me? Um, why does this even matter? Well, here's why it matters. It gives us context and context is going to help us understand the Bible, understand this book, right? It tells us who wrote it. It tells us who received it. And it gives us a hint as to why it was written, all of which is going to help us engage what is in it, right? When we read the Bible, you guys, when we read the Bible, we need to approach it in two ways when it comes to context, the macro and the micro, okay? So when we're talking about the macro, we're talking about the big picture of the Bible, we're talking about the micro, we're talking about the individual context of, of each letter. We need to approach it in, in both ways. Too often, I think, uh, we kind of approach the Bible as if it didn't have a context, 
right? We just grab verses and, and, and people use them for their proof texts, for their arguments, or for the positivity pills to help them get them through the day. And they don't really pay attention to, to who actually said it or why it was said or what it actually means in its original context. And, and, and you guys, this is, um, this is a problem. Um, this book, talking about the macro context, this book is the most remarkable book on the face of the earth. And that's not hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating. I mean, seriously, I mean, think about it. Whether you're a believer or not, this is the most remarkable book on the face of the earth. It is not just a collection of random sayings. It is not just a collection of wisdom uh, literature. It is not just a collection of tales. This book tells one story, amazingly. Now, it was written in almost a 2,000-span year of time, 66 different books, around 40 different authors in three different languages. And yet, when I read Genesis chapter 3, I find that same theme echoed in Revelation 22. When I, when I study this, I find the same, there's a, in all of the micro stories, there is one big macro story. There is an overarching story that runs through the entire scripture. You guys, I was a, a copy editor for a college yearbook. I had about six people that were writing, and I had a single theme that I was supposed to keep through a single college yearbook, and it was like herding cats. It was almost impossible to keep them all on a single theme. This thing was written in almost a 2,000-year span of time. The copy editor had to be bigger and, 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 and more powerful than all the cultural changes, the language changes, the author changes, the shifting time. This thing tells a single story, which tells me there's a single storyteller. It is a remarkable book. And what that means when we're studying it is this. When I'm studying, say, the concept of glory, I can look at what Moses said about it. I can look at what King David said about it. I can look at what Jesus said about it. I can look at what the Apostle Paul said about it. I can look at what the Apostle James said about it. And, and as I look at those verses, as I study what they said, they're all equally authoritative. I can, I can put those verses and those ideas side by side and look at a developing understanding of glory through Scripture. When I study the history of the covenants, I can see how even though there were at times, you know, you're talking hundreds of years separating the covenants, they flow naturally one to the next as those promises through time are unpacked, right? And, and when you read the Bible, it's remarkable in its diversity, even though there is this incredible story that's being told in the Bible. You're, you're looking at books of history and books of poetry and books of prophecy and, and personal letters, and each of these, man, each of these is unique. Each author wrote a specific letter to a specific people for a specific purpose. That's the micro context, right? That's the micro context. Who wrote it? Who are they writing to? Why did they write it? We need to pay attention to both. Now, a rule of thumb for, for biblical study. You start with the micro and you work your way out to the macro. You start with, with the context of the, the letter itself. What did this author mean when he said this thing? What did he mean by this word? What did he mean by this phrase? And then you look at how it ties into how the other authors of his time and, and how the rest of Scripture ties into that. But you begin in the micro and you work your way out. Why does this matter? Well, because context matters. The author's original intent matters. Um, recently, God blessed me with a grandson. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty stinking awesome, I'll tell you. And I know, yeah, I know, I'm too young. 
Um, I know that's a that is a that's a true thing. Um, but uh, but I am uh, as a result of that watching my daughter's dogs uh, as as she's kind of adjusting to parenthood and all the rest of that. Um, and so that means we have three dogs. I've got my old lab, and then we've got her two young younger younger dogs. Um, now let's say hypothetically. Uh, I was writing a letter to somebody that I was mentoring, um, a younger guy, and, and, and in that letter, I, I wrote this. I, I said, dogs are a freaking nuisance. Now, let's say for some crazy reason, a couple hundred years from now, someone somewhere considers me important. And then more people consider me important. They start collecting my letters, and, and they discover this line, dogs are a freaking nuisance. And they develop a doctrine out of this. They, they, they make an assertion. You cannot be a good Christian and own dogs. Because Steve said dogs are a freaking nuisance. Now, let's say, hypothetically, in this future state, somebody wants to argue, I like dogs. Why can't I own dogs? Dogs enrich my life. And no, no, no. Steve is obviously very, very clear. He used the general noun dogs, which means all canines, even the little ones, all dogs. He says dogs. It's the general noun. And he says they are a nuisance. And, and in the most holy and sanctified thesaurus.com, it says that nuisance means vexation, trouble, or plague. That means dogs bring the plague. And not only that, he said they are a freaking nuisance. That makes it emphatic. They will bring a plague that will freak you out. So that means you can't own a dog. You don't want to bring back the plague, do you? Context, you guys, context. I own dogs. Like, I own dogs. Why do I own dogs? Because I like dogs, right? Um, I enjoy dogs. Why do my kids love dogs? Because I got them dogs, right? I raised them to love dogs. I am watching the dogs because I love my kids who love the dogs. And, and that's not to say that in this moment in time, I don't occasionally say dogs are a freaking nuisance, I do. Three dogs is a lot, okay? But that doesn't mean that I, I despise dogs or I hate dogs. In the context, if you look at the context of who's writing it, who I'm writing to, in the context and the circumstances of that statement, you can see that that is a temporary expression of, of temporary frustration, not uh, meant to be a universal rule uh, applied in some other way, right? Context. Context. So today, we're going to be focusing on the original context of the letter. Now, this letter, I'm telling you, comes out swinging. You come back next week, man, we're, it's going to hit you, okay? Um, but I want it to hit you right. I want you to engage this right. And that means we need to spend a little bit of time today helping prepare ourselves by looking at the context so that we can understand what we're reading. Okay, so James one. Uh, gives us the context, right? It's, it's uh, going to give us the focus of the letter and, and how it speaks powerfully to us. So the basics are clear, right? The basics are clear. We see the author is uh, James, right? And he is writing to the 12 tribes who are in the dispersion. Um, that leads us to a couple of basic questions. Who's James and what does it matter? And what does he mean by the 12 tribes? Who are they? And how do we fit in? If he's James and he's writing to the 12 tribes, 
how in the world does it, how am I supposed to read it? How does it apply to me? All right, so for most of church history, there has been agreement that the James who wrote this letter is, is actually James, the half-brother of Jesus. When you read through the Gospels, um, you see that, that Jesus actually had a, a broader family. He had half-brothers and half-sisters, and uh, they were not followers of Jesus. Um, they were not devoted followers, right? They, these are the people who grew up with Jesus, right? They saw Jesus go through adolescence. They knew him when he had pimples, right? They, they, they were not followers of Jesus. And in fact, at certain points in the Gospels, they actually tried to intervene in Jesus's life. Uh, like, dude, you're, you're kind of crazy, right? You, you need to back off a little bit. And, and Jesus had to kind of separate himself from them and say, you guys are not speaking to me like my true family would, right? And, and so it is interesting that James's half-brother, who was not a follower, became a follower. And that happened after the resurrection, right? After Jesus was crucified and he came back from the dead, that so undid James that James became uh, a believer, now, there's another James that's very prominent in the New Testament. And in fact, if you read the New Testament, you're going to see him mentioned. Um, he's James, the brother of John, sometimes known as James, the son of Zebedee. Uh, James and John were known as the sons of thunder. Uh, they got into a little bit of trouble together. They were some fishermen. And, and James and John and Peter made up the core group of Jesus' disciples. Those three were included uh, when, James went off, when Jesus went off into quiet places. He would often take those three with him. When he went up to the, the Mount of Transfiguration, those three went with him. They, they had access to Jesus. Um, so how come it's not that James? Why don't we think it's that James that wrote this? Well, because that James was actually put to death by Herod Agrippa I in, in Acts chapter 12. Um, and, and, and that would have put his death at about A.D. 44, and that's too early. Uh, this letter was at earliest written in the late 40s, um, which I believe it was. I think it was a very early letter. Um, Jesus was crucified and, and rose again around A.D. 33, um, and, and so this would have put the letter um, just a little over uh, a decade out from, from the resurrection. So James... Uh, who was one of the half-brothers of Jesus, became one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. We find that out as we read through the book of Acts. Um, he he rode to, rose to prominence, and uh, he led a Jewish Christian church, because in the beginning, that's all it was, right? It was, a, it was a lot of Jewish people who became believers in Jesus, or proselytes, people that had Gentiles who had become followers of Judaism that became believers. So, so in the early church, he is a Jewish man writing to a, a Jewish audience, uh, but he's doing it uh, from a unique perspective. He says, he introduces himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this word servant, doulos, um, the Greek word doulos literally means bondservant. Uh, it can be translated slave, but it's often translated more as somebody who voluntarily takes the place of a slave. Now, why would anybody do that? Because in ancient culture, there was tremendous honor in being the servant in a house of nobility. And there were times when, when people looked at the landscape of, of their options in life, um, their best option was basically to attach themselves to a, a noble house uh, of, of, of prosperity and, and a place where they were treated with respect. And, and, and so they would actually become doulos. They would become, they would become bond slaves. And, and they would actually go and nail their earlobe to the, to the doorpost, right? It was a way of, of saying, I attach myself to this house. 
right? And there was tremendous honor uh, if the house was a house of honor. And, and so this was a common phrase used by, by Jewish leaders to describe their relationship to God. I'm a bond slave of Yahweh. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bond slave of God. I attach myself to his house. There is tremendous honor in my taking a place of service in his house of glory, right? And so this would have been a very common phrase that, that all the Jewish people would have recognized what he was saying, right? I'm a servant of God. I, I'm, I attach myself to the glory of God. I follow God. But then he does something radical in the Jewish mind. He attaches a second part. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm a servant of Yahweh and the Lord Jesus Christ. He puts them on the same level. He gives them the same emphasis. He is basically saying Jesus is God. Because only, only God can be on the same level with God. I am a doulos. I am a bond slave of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he describes Jesus, he does more than just give his personal name, right? He knew Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He was familiar with Jesus. But he calls him Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for a lot of us, we may not understand the significance of that. Christ was not his last name, okay? Christ is a title that literally means anointed one or Messiah, right? So he says he is Jesus the Messiah, the hero that has been promised throughout the covenants of the Old Testament the one who would come to redeem and restore, the one who would undo what we had done to take us where we could not go. He was the embodiment of God's blessing, Jesus the Christ. But he precedes it with the title Lord. Lord speaks of his person. Christ speaks of his purpose. Lord speaks of his person. He is the Lord Jesus. It is a word that signifies he is a uh, 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 of, of power and authority. Now, this word was used of people throughout the Old Testament um, in the Greek world. People could be a lord. It just meant that they had power and influence in culture. But when you combine the fact that he says, I'm a servant of God and equally of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a clear proclamation of the deity and the authority of Jesus. Right? I am a servant. So he is a Jewish writer but he is clearly writing from a Christian perspective. He is writing not just to a Jewish audience, but to a Christian Jewish audience from a Christian Jewish perspective because he himself approached Jesus, not as his brother, but as his Lord and as his Christ. So why doesn't he say, hey, I'm James, the brother of Jesus? If I were James, I'd have a hard time not saying it. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's pretty significant credentials right there, right? Because not very many people could say it. That puts you in a pretty elite class. Like, I grew up with this guy, right? I know the inside story. I know what he likes to eat. I know where he likes to hang out. I know what makes him laugh, right? And, and what we want to do when we do that sort of stuff, we associate, we want their glory to rub off on us, right? If you know somebody famous and you're always leading out with, yeah, well, I used to know so-and-so right? What you're hoping is their glory rubs off on you. Why doesn't James do that? In fact, some people will actually say James, the brother of Jesus, couldn't be the writer because he would have done that. But here's the thing. James doesn't see his authority in writing this letter 
coming from his physical relationship with Jesus, but from his spiritual relationship with Jesus. His authority doesn't come from the fact that he's the physical brother of Jesus. That has nothing to do with it. He approaches Jesus not as his brother, but as his Lord and as his Christ. That's what gives him the authority to speak with authority to whom? To the 12 tribes. Now, the 12 tribes, that phrase seems a little um, unusual to us. We're not familiar with that again during this period of time in this culture. Everybody would have known what he was talking about. This is a reference to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Right? If you remember, we talked about this in the covenant series. You look at Old Testament history. Abraham is the father of, of the nation of Israel. Right? Abraham gave, had, had a son named, named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob was renamed Israel, and Israel had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and so when it talks about the 12 tribes, he's writing to the 12 tribes. It's a way of saying that, that he is writing um, to Jewish Christians who are part of the dispersion. Greek word diaspora. What does that mean? Well, during this period of time, this phrase was used to describe any Jew that wasn't living in Jerusalem, right? So if, if you lived in Samaria, if you lived in Judea, if you lived farther out, you were in the diaspora, you were in the dispersion because it meant that you lived away from home. Now, it wasn't an insult. It wasn't a, a way of putting people down. It was just a description that because of your life events, your job, your family, whatever, you've had to live away from Jerusalem. You've had to live away from home. And while you're in the dispersion, you're waiting to get home. There was always that, that description indicated that there's a, a yearning and a waiting, right? That, that there will come a time where even though you're living out there, you'll get to come back here, that, that you get to come home. So he's speaking to the 12 tribes who are living outside of Jerusalem. Now, for Jewish Christians to live outside of Jerusalem means that this had to be written after Acts 11 because before Acts 11, all the Jewish Christians lived together in Jerusalem and held all things in common. But then persecution arose in Acts chapter 11 and it drove the Jewish Christians out into the surrounding communities. So that tells us this had to be written um, earliest would be the late 40s, which is where I would, I would place it. So here's the thing, you guys. Are you still awake? Good, good, good. All right. We, we have a Jewish author who is writing to first century Jewish audience, and he's writing in a Jewish format, which means that when you read the book of James, uh, it may frustrate some of you. Some of you really like orderly, logical sequence, right? When you wrote your papers in high school and in college, you loved outlining you just loved it. Roman numeral one, Roman numeral two, Roman numeral three. And you knew that under each one of those, you had to have an A, B, and C. And under each one of those, you needed to have a one, two, three, right? And if you put an A, you had to have a B with it, right? Here's the thing. You, you love the, the, the logical, orderly development of ideas. And, and, and if you're like that, go read the book of Romans and outline it. It'll just give you joy. Okay, because Paul in the book of Romans just very logically and methodically develops ideas. And I'm going to warn you, James is going to frustrate you because James is not using a Greek or Western approach to logic. He is speaking from a Jewish cultural mindset. The book of James reflects wisdom literature, ancient Jewish wisdom literature. And in wisdom literature, we don't move methodically from point A to B to C. You move like this. You move in cycles. 
which means James is going to talk about suffering and then very abruptly start talking about the tongue and then very abruptly start talking about wealth and then go back to abruptly talking about the tongue and then go back abruptly and start talking about anger and then abruptly, you know, just, and he'll, he'll revisit. Like instead of saying, here's all the things you need to know about your language. Now here's all the things you need to know about your anger. And here's all that he just cycles through, which means you keep coming back to the same themes over and over again. Well, that's an aspect of wisdom literature. That's a different cultural form of writing than what we're used to. So I'm warning you up front that as you read through it, um, it's going to seem choppy. It's going to seem fast because he gives short little points and then moves from point to point to point. And then you're going to like, oh, hey, didn't he already say something about this? Yeah, he did. He's just cycling through the central themes like words and money and anger. All right, Jewish writer, predominantly Jewish audience, Jewish themes, and Jewish structure. Huh. What in the world does that have to do with us? Right? How does this apply to, to us? How is James speaking to me? All right, while James is clearly influenced by his Jewish heritage and his Jewish culture, which we would expect him to be, that's what he was raised in, he is writing not from his Jewish heritage, he is writing from his Christian identity. And when he's speaking to the 12 tribes of Israel, while he is first and foremost speaking to the Jewish Christians of his day, he is not just speaking to Jewish Christians. The phrase 12 tribes of Israel in the first century had broadened in its meaning to mean more than just the descendants of Abraham. It had broadened to mean God's elect people. So that phrase is used in other contexts where they would say the 12 tribes of Israel or, or to the 12 tribes. He's not being so literal as saying, I'm only speaking to Jewish Christians. He is saying, I am speaking to God's elect people. God's elect people who are living in the dispersion, who are living in the, the diaspora. The focus is on the God's elect people who are not home. That's where we fit in. They were living in kingdoms of the world, waiting for God's kingdom to break in and take them home. And we today, as believers, in a very different cultural context, in a very different time, are doing the same exact thing. We live in this kingdom. We live in this culture. We live in this time. But this place is not our home. This place is not the full expression of what we hope for or what we yearn for. We realize that, that the Christ who came to inaugurate his kingdom at his death, burial, and resurrection will, when he returns, come to fulfill his kingdom in promise and experience. That we are waiting. We live in the overlap of the ages where the age of the world is dying out and the age of, of God's kingdom is breaking in and, and there will be a time where God's kingdom is established on earth but we're waiting for it. We're waiting to be taken home. We're waiting for God's kingdom to be realized. So the purpose of this letter, James is writing and he's saying, this is how you live in the time between the two kingdoms. This is how you live in this time between the two advents, in this time, in the dying of the age of man and the birth of the age of the new man, the last Adam. His purpose makes sense to us. 
And honestly, when you read through this letter, it's going to make sense of your reading. It's going to help you understand as he cycles through the content, um, you're going to realize there is a central theme tying it all together. There's a reason he's cycling through these points. There's a reason he's, he's hitting these themes. It's because these are important ways we live out our kingdom identity. These are important ways that we live here with our hope there. We live in this world, but our values and our motivations are shaped by the world that is coming. This is how we live here without being shaped and driven by greed, but instead are being shaped and driven by grace. This is the theme that ties it all together. Here's the challenge with the book of James, you guys. James is so eminently practical that some of you are going to be tempted to turn it into a to-do list. You're going to read through and it's going to be like, okay, don't use my tongue for bad, use my tongue for good. Don't use my money to to measure my wealth or the wealth of others, Um, measure people by their intrinsic worth. Um, I, I don't be angry and sin uh, be angry and sin not. Um, and you're going to make this to-do list. And the problem is, here's the thing, that can very quickly become your self-improvement project. That can very quickly become your way to make yourself a better Christian. <laughs> Which you can't do. I'm going to tell you up front, that to-do list is a pathway to failure. Um, or Phariseeism, which is failure just with self-righteousness attached. Okay. Uh, we don't want to go down that path. We, we want to go down a very different path. So I want, I want to draw your attention to one passage. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in it because I'm going to preach it and I'm looking forward to it. But it's in, it's in chapter 4, and I'm going to put it on the screen behind me. Okay, It's in chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6. I believe this is the heart of the letter. Remember how we talked about cycling? This is the heart from where all those cycles are emanating. This is the central theme that ties it all together. And when you read through the book of James, you'll notice that he takes a very different tone in these verses. Like he's just like giving good advice and he's giving good, he's, he's, he's talking about how to live out the, the kingdom principles and, and here are some good principles. And then all of a sudden you get to this and, and man, he just sounds like an Old Testament prophet, man. He sounds like a crotchety old man um, and, and, and he's ready to swing. So I'm going to read this out loud. You can follow along on the screen. You adulterous people, that's pleasant. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All right, so James in in these verses sounds a lot more like a prophet than he does a teacher. And that's because this is the prophetic call at the heart of this letter. This is the central truth he wants to drive home. You are in this world, but you are not of this world. You are in this kingdom, but you are to be driven and shaped by the values of the kingdom to come. Don't foster a love affair with this world. Don't adopt all of its values. Don't be driven by all of its ambitions. Don't measure your worth like this world measures worth. Just don't do it. That is friendship with the world. And when you are a friend with the world, you are making yourself an enemy of God. Because those are two competing value systems. One is about how I do life apart from God. The other is about how I do life independence on God. 
See, worldliness is the system that I create to try to get the blessings of God without the presence of God. It's how I try to get the fullness of life without dependence on the God who gives that fullness. It is my self-salvation project. That's worldliness. The church often defines worldliness as the bad stuff out there, right? Hollywood and, 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 and the bars and, and bad entertainment. And, and if you just stay away from all those things, you'll be okay. But that's not how Scripture talks about worldliness. Worldliness isn't a bad thing out there. It's a bad thing in here. It is my intrinsic drive to try to get the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it. It is my drive to be like God instead of dependent on God. And that's what makes often going to church just as worldly as going to the strip club. When it is my attempt to secure the blessings of life apart from humble dependence on God, I am running in competition to grace, not in dependence on it. So James uncovers in this passage our central problem. We are driven by worldliness but it also unpacks our our central solution. It's grace. Grace. God gives more grace. You can't fix yourself. This isn't a holy to-do list that if you do these right things and don't do these bad things, somehow you'll fix yourself. No. This is how you live out grace. This is how you live out your dependence on the God who loves you. This is how you can be driven back in your need to the God who can change you in ways you can't change yourself and free you in ways you can't free yourself and and will help you when, when you are completely helpless. That's grace. Grace is not a helping hand. It is the delivering presence of the love of God. It is not a sanctified effort of my will. It is my yielding my will to the sanctifying work of Christ. It is my embracing the resurrection of Jesus as my source of change instead of my willpower for myself or for God. Now, we're going to unpack all this, guys. We're going to get into all this. But what I want you to see is that James is a radical call to a life of grace. It is not a holy to-do list for you to fix yourself. It is a call to dependence. It is a call to humility. Because God gives grace to the humble, and it's only in receiving grace we can change. It is only in receiving grace we can be delivered. It is only in receiving grace that we have any hope of experiencing the fullness of life that is promised to us as a result of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We are all of God's kingdom, but we are all tempted to live by the values and the motives of this kingdom, to measure our worth, to find our security, to to ultimately look for our affirmation, from the values and, 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 and the things of the, the, the world around us, our political platforms, our, our social uh, uh, endeavors, our, 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 our measuring of worth. Here's the thing, you guys. We're being invited to something much better. So James, James is, 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 is going to show us how this plays out in practical ways, how we speak, how we use our tongue, how we relate to money and those who have a lot of it and those who have very little of it how we pray, and what we pray for, how we deal with hurt and with anger, how we approach church and and community with other believers. Yes, we live in a broken world, but what James is calling us to is not to be shaped by the brokenness of it, but to be freed by grace. That's why James wrote the book, and I think that's why we need to study it, and that's why I'm really, really excited about what God's going to do in us as we engage it. All right, you guys, I'm going to close this in a prayer. 
And, um, you know, one thing I thought about between services, that last word, greetings, you know, that's to us. I guess I knew that before, but I hadn't really realized that that's James speaking through the ages to me. Hey, I hope you're ready because this is going to be good. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. We're going to share communion together in a moment. Father, I thank you um, for the gift of your word. I thank you. Man, I just thank you for grace. I thank you that you love us, even though we don't deserve it. You do for us what we can never do for ourselves. You, in your humility, put up with our foolishness and our pride as we're putting our little trophies of self-achievement and self-accomplishment and self-glory in front of you. You don't despise us in our foolishness, nor do you reject us. But you love us and you call us to be loved. You love us and you call us to grace. And it's in grace that we learn to see ourselves and this world clearly. It is in grace that we learn to have our hope recentered on what doesn't disappoint. It is in grace that we learn to be loved by you, to learn to love one another and even to love ourselves. Spirit, I pray that you will work as we study this book, not just to open our minds to understand its contact content, but to open our hearts that it might uh, undo us and remake us in beautiful ways. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.